a Podcast One production. Hello, I'm Adam Shand. Previously on Understate Lucille Butterworth, a new investigation began into Lucille's disappearance. For 40 years, it was suspected that a man named John Lonergan had killed Lucille, but he was never charged. Then, Inspector David Plumpton found another name in the file, almost a footnote to the investigation in the 1970s. I could go through in detail everything about Lonergan, and you'd say to me, he's the offender. He should have been charged. However, I then highlight another person, and you'll say, oh, yeah, that's him. Jeffrey Charles Hunt was a convicted murderer. In 1976, he'd raped and killed a woman named Susan Knight near New Norfolk. The file showed that in 2000, on the eve of his release from prison, Hunt was interviewed about Lucille, but there was no record of what was said. Plumpton asked Carrie Milhouse to look at Hunt as a suspect, but initially he didn't say why. Carrie Milhouse. What we found, though, even though Lucille went missing... 1969, and they treated her as a as a runaway. And when they actually started to seriously look at it, they didn't even speak to that. Well, Hunt was never a consideration, even though he should have been. In 1969, Jeffrey Hunt was 19. He was an albino who'd been tormented and ostracised in his hometown of New Norfolk. At the time of Lucille's disappearance, Hunt was travelling to Hobart each day to work in the white goods department of a retailer named Nettlefolds. The company also sold cars, so was known as motors by locals. With so little in the file on him, Carrie Milhouse had to start from scratch. To understand him, Milhouse began piecing together the story of Hunt's childhood and discovered his home life growing up was far from happy. An actor is reading evidence that Jeff's younger brother Ken gave Milhouse. I recall growing up and the abuse the family suffered from our father. Dad worked on the railways for 40 years. Dad targeted Jeffrey and singled him out for abuse. I recall him putting Jeff's head in the toilet. Jeff received no love from Dad at all. Jeff was quite weak and couldn't stand up to our father. Jeff's older brother Philip had lived away from his abusive father, Bill Hunt, but told Milhouse the same story in 2014. This is also read by an actor. Jeffrey wasn't the favourite of Dad. Mum would tell me how hard Jeff was treated by Dad. Dad was quite a violent man, especially when he'd been drinking. Dad was sadistic. Mum would have to go to school to make excuses for Jeff being late or absent, but wouldn't tell them the truth about things Dad would do. When Hunt was 16, he allegedly assaulted, sexually assaulted, a 10-year-old girl in a train station in Norfolk. When I was a child, I would often play in the rail yards, which were just over my fence in New Norfolk. Millhouse tracked down the victim of that alleged assault. She cannot be named for legal reasons, but in 2014, she related what she could remember, read here by an actor. She recalled playing hide-and-seek with her sister in the rail yards. She couldn't find me, so she thought I'd gone home. I recall Geoffrey Hunt dragging me into the toilets at the rail yards. He had me on the floor of the toilet. He pulled my pants down. I don't recall seeing his genitalia or otherwise. I don't think he sexually assaulted me, but honestly, I can't remember. 
I can still even now remember Geoffrey Hunt kneeling over me. He had his pants down. I remember that Geoffrey stood up and he was urinating in the hand basin. This is when I stood up and ran away. In my own mind, I was not sexually assaulted in that I don't believe I was touched inappropriately by Geoffrey Hunt. If I was, I just don't remember. The matter was heard in a Norfolk court and I believe it was thrown out after having spoken with the victim, it was thrown out through an, an identity anomaly. And I don't know actually what that means. We could never find the file relating to that. So even though Hunt had committed that offence at 16, he was still never looked at as a suspect for, for Lucille. Hunt's younger brother, Ken, cast doubt on the victim's story. An actor is reading what he told investigators. I remember the allegation. I went to school with and I put it on her about the allegation against Jeff. She admitted to me that she had made it up. I remember bragging about it at school. Growing up, Jeff was a thinker, always deep in thought. I had porn magazines in the room I shared with Jeff. It wasn't hardcore porn, but pictures of girls and articles. The sections on how to contact women were cut out, and I knew Jeff did it. I didn't confront him over it because I'd read the magazines anyway. Jeff's older brother, Philip, told police he tried to help him meet girls. Jeff didn't have any ideas on how to pick up women. He was very shy and wouldn't know how to approach girls. I recall one time we were having a counter meal at the Man in the Wheel Hotel in Hobart. A couple of young girls walked in. They were dancing. I told Jeff to approach them, but he wouldn't. I tried to help him. He didn't have a clue. One thing I can say about Jeff is that he's a shrewd operator. He could do something wrong and act as if nothing was wrong. Albinism is an inherited genetic condition that reduces the amount of melanin in the skin, hair and eyes. It affects one in 17,000 Australians. But in the Hunt family, all but one of the six siblings inherited the albinism gene. In a small town like New Norfolk, this marked them out for curiosity and ridicule. Each of the Hunt kids had to find a way of dealing with it. David Plumpton and his team had to put Hunt's physical difference out of their minds as they assessed the evidence that would emerge. It's not so easy when albinos are marginalised and misunderstood. Around the world you see it's a source of fear and anxiety and when you put them all together, I mean, did you have to kind of like separate that from your thought process? You do, but look, uh, the albinism forms part of who he is, but it isn't what you're interested in. Albinism hasn't caused him to do any of the things that he's done. And it doesn't impact upon his... Personally, apart from one thing, that is, you know this person has been subject to bullying, ridicule, and therefore his capacity to respond to you, everything I say to him, he's going to take as an accusation, he's going to take as an attack. He's that used to being attacked. His defence mechanisms are very, very refined. I remember recently telling my friends in Melbourne about the Albino family and the Albino that used to follow me. My friend was laughing, saying she's never going to Tasmania because she's scared of the Albinos there. I never told police about my suspicions about the Albino boy regarding the disappearance of Lucille. Gillian Bradley lived near the Hunt family in New Norfolk. She also knew Lucille. In 1969, Gillian was 18 and, like Lucille, she had dreams of winning Miss Tasmania. They were on committees together for the pageant. Gillian was at the meeting the night when Lucille disappeared. She feels it could have easily been her instead. In 2014, she told police of a narrow escape that took place just three weeks before Lucille's disappearance. I was driving home from work at Hobart to my home at New Norfolk when I was followed by a vehicle. 
I was travelling between Granton and New Norfolk, where it was normally fairly quiet and not much traffic, and a car came up really close behind me and started following me. The car then pulled up alongside me and tried to cut me off, trying to run me off the road. I saw the driver. It was a male with very white or grey hair. The car followed me all the way to my house and stopped outside when I pulled up in the drive. I was terrified. I ran inside and the car left. Later, I realised the driver's hair wasn't grey, but was actually a blondy white colour. I distinctly remembered thinking to myself how white the hair was. I didn't note any other features and I couldn't tell how old he was. After that, I began receiving weird phone calls at home. When I answered the phone, a male voice said, I've been following you. I've been watching your every move. Or, I'm watching you get undressed. The calls were always after I got home from work. There was a phone box at the top of my street and also one near the Fitzgerald's shop. Gillian reported this to police in 1969, but no action was taken. In 2014, she remembered being followed regularly for up to 12 months before this incident. I noticed the same boy would seem to appear when I visited the Fitzgerald shop or when I was walking along Station Street. If I'd call into the Fitzgerald shop, he just seemed to turn up out of nowhere. The boy would appear behind me and follow me. I'm sure it was this albino boy that followed me in the car and made those phone calls. I always felt that the person chasing that night, the albino, was the person responsible for Lucille's disappearance. Bill and Mavis Hunt were living at 7 Station Street with their children, Terry, Ken, Jennifer, Ray and Geoffrey. Another son, Philip, the eldest, lived with his grandparents on a farm at nearby Plenty. Five of the six kids were albino with very pale skin, white hair and pink eyes. Ken was the only exception. On the corner of Station Street, Clyde Fitzgerald, John's father, had his grocery store 50 metres from the Hunts' home. So the Fitzgeralds and the Hunts were reasonably close back in those days in the 60s? Oh, well, uh, my father used to run an account for the Hunts, uh, like a lot of other people in the, in the district. And um, as I said, I didn't have a lot of contact with Hunt for these latter years, but my father would have seen Mr and Mrs Hunt and the family on a regular basis coming into the shop. John Fitzgerald would occasionally see Jeff in the street. But if he was with Lucille, he noticed that Jeff would not look directly at them or acknowledge them. One day they were washing John's car in the street and Lucille had said that Whitey is watching us. That was her nickname for Jeff. She'd called him that on several occasions when he was within earshot. One day she was sunbathing in the backyard of the Fitzgerald shop and she'd caught Hunt peeping over the side fence. It was unnerving, but not enough to scare her. New Norfolk held few terrors for people. It was a quiet town set amidst mountains on the banks of the Derwent. It had a paper mill and a mental asylum and not much more. In a small town, gossip gets around, and after Lucille went missing, people speculated that Jeff Hunt might have been involved. It was largely based on prejudice, but also on the memory of an alleged sexual assault in 1966. Hunt was accused of molesting a 10-year-old in a railway toilet. The alleged attack was common knowledge in New Norfolk, and he was regarded with suspicion from that time on. Tony Smith did a paper run out of the Fitzgerald shop. To be around him, you felt uncomfortable. Don't know what it was. If you walked into the into Fitzgerald's store and he was there, the hair on the back of neck would lift. You know, you just felt a bit uncomfortable around him. I think there was always a suspicion about Geoffrey because of what happened at the railway station sheds a few years earlier, which was hushed up. 
you know, you, you couldn't keep a secret in your Norfolk. It was impossible. Gary Milhouse couldn't really work out how he got off that one. It was some sort of anomaly about identification. I don't think there would have been a problem with identification. I think it's more that, that someone's being protected or it wasn't that bad, so we'll let it go. If New Norfolk Police knew there was a potential suspect living just metres from the Fitzgerald store, they didn't share this with the cops investigating Lucille's disappearance. And for the next seven years, Geoffrey Hunt was allowed to roam free. He was living at home in Station Street and working at Boyer, the local paper mill. Carrie Millhouse found numerous people with important new information about Hunt's activities. Now, another conversation I had with a, a retired police officer at the footy one day, and we were talking about Geoffrey Hunt, and he said... My ex-wife, um, her friend was, was attacked by a hunt. And I hadn't heard anything about this. This is, this is gold. Tell me more. He said, yeah, she'd, um, she'd advertised in the, in the Saturday paper. She was only 19 at the time. Babysitting service. And she got this call from a fella on the, on the Saturday to say, oh, look, I have twins. I'm interested in your babysitting service. OK, come and meet me um, Monday morning. This is my address, and we'll discuss it. Well, what had happened is Hunt had arrived at the house on the Monday morning, an hour early. Actually, the victim says it was three hours earlier. He watched and waited until the husband left for work, and then he went and knocked on the door. This young lady wasn't prepared. She was still dressed in her um, nighty negligee. The victim, who I'll call Vicky for legal reasons, told police the man at her door was easily identifiable. He was an albino male, and I remembered his eyes more than anything, as they were pink and shook from side to side, she said. The man had told her his wife could not come that morning as arranged, and he invited Vicky to meet her up at Dromedary, a mountain shaped like a camel's back. Uh, she sat him down at the coffee table and, um, and he drew a, um, a, a map area somewhere near Dromedary. And while he's drawing this map, he then goes bang and he jumps on her, starts attacking her and uh, molesting her. As the male was drawing, and with me sitting on the couch next to him wearing a negligee and matching dressing gown from my honeymoon, the male lunged at me, ripping my negligee. He jumped on top of me. I screamed and was kicking and punching at the male. And she screams, and she's in a um, conjoined flat with upstairs tenants and everything, and um, her screams alerted the neighbour, and the neighbour came bang, bang, bang on the floor, and um, that spooked him. He ran out the door and, and fled. My upstairs neighbour, Mrs Burton, came to see what had occurred and she said that she saw the male leaving via the front steps. A female officer took a report or statement from me. I believe that police may have taken my negligee and the map that the male was drawing as evidence. She called police. Um, police took the report as necessary. Um, didn't know, they didn't know who he was. No one knew Jeff Hunt, really? I find this a bit remarkable. Remember, this is a small town. Everyone knows everybody else. He was an albino man suspected of involvement in three cases of stalking or sexual assault over a decade. Yet as of 1976, he remained effectively unknown to police. Carrie Millhouse began to suspect that Hunt may have had some kind of local protection and also that his father, Bill, knew Jeff was somehow involved in Lucille's disappearance. How much do you think Hunt's father took to his grave? Do you think he knew? Did Hunt possibly confide in him? Yeah, he knew. I'm satisfied he knew. And I'm also pretty sure there was a former sergeant in Norfolk, Alan Gall. He worked in Norfolk for about 16 years. Bill Hunt, he was his best friend. They were mates. They did everything together. They drank together and they, they shared a lot. 
So Alan Gould and, and um, Bill Hunt, which is Jeff's dad, knew a lot about each other. There was one point where um, Alan Gould actually um, ignored Raymond drink driving, just give him a ride home one night. You know, the old days of booting him up the backside and doing the right thing. So Alan Gould looked after the Hunt family or looked after, you know, they were loyal. They were loyal to each other. And we think that Alan Gould, he took that to his grave as well. When we interviewed Alan, he, um, he'd, he'd had a lot of mini strokes, so he didn't recall a lot or chose not to recall a lot. But I think that um, we think that um, Alan Gore knew a lot more than he passed on to us as well. Gore has since died. Without the link to Hunt, police had no suspects for the attack on Vicky. All they had was a hand-drawn map indicating an area of bushland the offender had tried but failed to lure Vicky to. If it was Hunt who assaulted Vicky, he failed only because he couldn't restrain himself. Or perhaps he wanted to be caught, but no one came after him and he was handed another opportunity. Next time, he would stick to the plan. On the afternoon of July 5, 1976, a young car saleswoman was brutally raped and murdered on a lonely mountain road at Dromedary near New Norfolk. Jeff Hunt's younger brother, Ken, played here by an actor, saw him at home in the hours after. I walked past Jeff's car and it was still warm, so I knew he hadn't been home long. I shared a bedroom with Jeffrey and I went into our room and Jeff was in bed on the top bunk at 5pm. He was crying and shaking and I knew something wasn't right. When Jeff did come out, he sat on a stool and was shaking. I had a gut feeling when I heard about Susan Knight. I knew Jeffrey must have done it by his weird behaviour. The car was warm, but Jeffrey had told me he hadn't left the house all day. Police found the half-naked body of Miss Susan Knight, 24, off the Dromedary Road. They believe she died of extensive head wounds. A senior officer said it was one of the most brutal killings he'd come across. Two days later, police announced on the news they had a suspect in custody for Susan Knight's murder. I was watching the news on the murder of Susan Knight at Dromedary. I had a feeling then that the male that attacked me may be responsible for what I was seeing on the news. Then I saw his image and said to my mother, it's him, that was the male that attacked me. The map that Vicky's assailant drew included the Dromedary area, where Jeff Hunt later killed Susan Knight. Vicky has lived since with the knowledge that she may have been Hunt's intended victim. Hunt's liberty was short-lived after the killing of Susan Knight. He was seen driving Knight's car soon after the murder. And two days later, as he was travelling to work at the paper mill for a night shift, Hunt was intercepted by police. He was taken to the Glenorchy police station where he was interviewed over six hours. So let's just recap where we are in this story. In July 1976, Geoffrey Hunt was arrested for the rape and murder of a car saleswoman named Susan Knight, not far from New Norfolk. At this point, he was not even a suspect in the Butterworth case. In fact, he was hardly known to police at all. He should have been a suspect in a sexual assault weeks before Susan Knight's murder. The complainant, who we're calling Vicky, gave police a description that closely matched Geoffrey Hunt, but he wasn't on their radar and so he was free to kill Susan Knight. He was arrested and was willing to assist police with a confession and to lead them to Susan Knight's body. What happened next inside Glenorchy Police Station sets up the rest of this story. Every morning I'm reminded of this particular case because I walk past the bus stop and they've, they've erected a plaque opposite there now and so I'm reminded of it most days as I walk past it. And I think to myself, what if, you know, if things had gone a bit different, uh, the end result would have been a lot better. 
becoming your name and what you've been doing all these years? Uh, Kenneth uh, O'Gary. Um, I was a police officer for uh, 37 years. Ken O'Gary, then a detective sergeant, and his partner Barry Dillon were the first police to interview Hunt. They said that Hunt had made a full confession about Knight almost immediately. He said he'd telephoned Knight having seen her photograph in an advertisement in the Saturday Evening Mercury newspaper. He was interested in purchasing a motor vehicle, a Volkswagen, he told her. He gave a false name. He said he was Peter Bennett from Tribunna. They arranged to meet at Bridgewater outside the Derwent Hotel. Hunt took the Volkswagen for a test drive with Knight in the passenger seat. He said he heard a whining noise in the gearbox and suggested they test the vehicle on a hilly road. He then drove up Dromedary. Hunt claimed that Knight made a comment about a flat tyre. She'd noticed a thumping noise at the rear of the car. He stopped the vehicle to check. He told investigators that something just came over him and he attacked Knight. He chased her into the bush, raped her and struck her repeatedly with a large rock to the back of the head, killing her. He covered her body with stones, dead branches and a log, returned the Volkswagen to the Bridgewater area and then drove home to Station Street in his own car. When Hunt had finished describing the murder of Susan Knight, Barry Dillon asked whether he could help with Lucille's case and Hunt kept on talking. And then uh, as soon as he started talking, he's straight off the cuff. You know, he said, what can you tell us about? Can you tell us anything about it? Oh, yes, he said, I know about that. And he was telling us how he left work at Nettlefolds. We didn't know that that stage drive out here and he said oh he saw Lucille Butterworth at the bus stop and I distinctly remember he sort of passed and he said oh she might want like a lift so he, he reverses back and she gets in the car and away they go general conversation nothing much going on just a general conversation and then going up the near the cutting or past the cutting used to be a place called the cutting up there he said uh, she'd got this cramp in her foot and so he said, I stopped the car. That's when something came over me, tried to grab her, and she struggled, and he strangled her, and that was it, killed her. Then he carried her. Now, listen to this. This is not something you can make up on the spur of the moment. I carried her in a fireman's lift, a fireman's lift, across into the, towards the river, dumped her. He said, and when I come back, he said, oh, the handbag and shoes still there. So he said, oh, I had to get rid of So he got that. He said, and went out there in a general direction again and threw it the handbag and the shoe. He, 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 got, he told us everything quite freely. There was no, uh, no pressure or we didn't have to sort of uh, cross-examine him on what he was telling us. Like we'd ask questions, he'd, he'd give us an answer and that'd lead it onto another question. But there was no hesitation. He never said, oh, I'm not going to tell you about that. I don't want to talk about that. There was nothing like that. Everything we asked him, he gave us an answer. O'Gary and Dylan had two confessions for the price of one, but only one body, that of Susan Knight. And Hunt's admissions about Lucille were not yet on paper. A night of work lay ahead for the cops on the Susan Knight case. So Lucille would have to wait again. And we thought, well, we'll come back to that later. Yeah, yeah. So we didn't, do, we didn't do a formal uh, recording of that, you see. There's no formal recording of it. They came out of the interview room and they spoke to the detective inspector, which was Mr Orkenning. Graham Hickey was a junior detective brought in from Hobart to help that night. He, along with several other detectives, was on hand when Dylan and O'Gary came out to speak to their boss, Orb Canning. Uh, Ken O'Gary told him that Hunt had also confessed to the murder of Lucille Butterworth. So you heard him say that? Yeah, I heard him say it. There were five other officers standing around who could have heard the same thing. One of them was a detective, Richard McCready, who would go on to become the police commissioner of Tasmania. Yet Hunt's confession never made it into the file. It was never committed to print. 
The story of how this happened and what happened next only came to light in 2014 when O'Gary and Dylan spoke to David Plumpton. After Hunt's admissions, there were some procedures to follow. They don't do it these days, but back then police had a register of persons interviewed. You had to get somebody independent of the inquiry, but senior to yourself, to put a series of questions to the accused, to see if they had any complaints about their treatment and to formally adopt any statements they'd made. O'Gary asked his boss, Orb Canning, to attend to these formalities with Hunt. Canning went into the interview room alone. He should have been in there no longer than three or four minutes, but he was in there for a bloody good 10 or 15 minutes. And he came out and that's when he said, oh, you got it all wrong, you know. He's not saying that now, words to that effect. So Barry went in, outside, he went back in, he came back out, he said, no, he's still saying the same. Canning said, oh, let me go and see him again. So he goes in and this is sort of going back and forth. O'Gary believes that Canning may have held concerns that getting two confessions from Hunt at once might have compromised the outcome in the Susan Knight murder. See, the situation was then that Canning had said, no, he couldn't assist us with the inquiry or something like that. And he said it three or four times. So you'll have to write that in the interrogation mm-hmm. book. But he can't assist us. So I said, oh, well, he can't assist us. But O'Gary and Dylan wouldn't let this rest. When they drove Hunt to the scene of Susan Knight's murder, they asked him to indicate where he disposed of Lucille's body. So when we went up the, um, the opposite side of the river, because that's where he murdered the girl. The dromedary. dromedary. We went up that side of the river. Then we come back uh, the main road. We said, oh, we'll pull in. I said to Dylan, we'll pull in. We'll get him to show us where he dumped his body on the way back because he'd already told us roughly where it was. So uh, then he said, oh, pull in here or something like that. So I was driving at the time, so I pulled in. And then uh, uh, when we mentioned it to him, you know, can you show us now? He just shut up. Wouldn't say anything. O'Gary can only speculate what passed between Canning and the accused man in that interview room. And I reckon he's told this fellow not to tell us any more because he's already on this murder charge for the night girl. But I still think today that that's what he's done. He said to him, look, don't, I wouldn't worry, I wouldn't tell him any more about that because you're on a murder charge now, you're never going to get out. You've been there forever sort of thing. Uh, if you're charged with two minutes, it's not going to make any bloody difference. You're not going to get any more sentence. They can only sentence you <laughs> to life imprisonment once, you see. Under the sentencing regime of the day, life imprisonment meant life. According to O'Gary, Canning questioned the sense of pursuing Hunt's confession about Lucille. He said it might jeopardise the admissions they had about Susan Knight. He did mention that at one stage. You've already got him on this murder charge for the Knight girl. And, of course, it was a a, a confession, a signed confession in a record of interview. Pages and pages of it in detail. And uh, he was saying more or less, you know, well... If there's anything further about anything other matter, he said it might affect the uh, confession on this. And so O'Gary says he followed orders and wrote in the interrogation register that Hunt had been unable to assist in the Butterworth matter, but he wasn't happy about it. Canning said to me after, because he was a great one for reports. He was report Mm. mad, you know. So he tells me after this, of course, this same day, because I'm pushing, you know, to get this done and go on to see the family and continue the thing on. Better give me a report about it. So I gave him a report. I typed it myself, a confidential report. That report was not in the old file that Millhouse and Rushton were working on. There was nothing of Hunt's confessions at all in there. As the years dragged on, there were at least two reviews of the case, but Hunt's confession never came to light. In the early 1990s, Graham Hickey was asked to put the Butterworth file in order. You'll recall Hickey had been on the scene in Glenorchy Police Station in 1976 when Hunt had supposedly confessed. When you were working through the file, did that scene in the, in the Glenorchy CIB come back to you at all? Or? 
Well, from 76, yeah. I can't say there's a dead, though. No. When you think about it, I suppose I, perhaps I should have done, but uh, I, I can't recall uh, coming back. And I certainly had never ever spoke to anybody about it because otherwise it might have been, could have been taken further, I don't know. And Richard McCready was now the police commissioner. That's right. He'd been he'd been with you that night, and had, and had heard the same thing. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm sure he. I'm sure Richard would have heard this. Yeah, I'm, that's he, the evidence he gave. Yeah, he was he was in the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there he is. He gives you the file. Did he mention it? He didn't mention it either. No, the, no, he the didn't. Confession. He didn't mention anything about that. He, he just said, "Graham, you put this together." <laughs> which I did, it took me months. In 2000, another officer named John Ward was asked to review the file again and he sought out Ken O'Gary. O'Gary might have mentioned Hunt's confession and the report he filed to Canning, but he didn't. So you didn't tell Ward, you you assumed that report might have been in the file, I guess, so you didn't bother to tell Ward about that? No, I didn't. Yeah. Because I assumed that it it, it had been there. There you go. Confidential, handed it to him. Personally, well, what happened to that, I don't know. And there was no record in the file of Ward's interview with Hunt in 2000. Just a note to say it had happened. If Ward knew of the 1976 confession when he spoke to Hunt, he didn't take it any further. He declined to be interviewed when I contacted him. It wasn't until 2010 that David Plumpton caught wind of talk that Hunt had made a confession to police about killing Lucille and began asking questions. The confession and the alleged location of Lucille's remains were apparently open secrets within Tasmanian police. Plumpton would discover this had much to do with internal politics and personal pride. That's my question really, is just that how successive people, and everyone was in the know, but no one did anything. Strange thing. Meanwhile, the body might have been there all those years. Maybe. Well, I'm quite convinced that had we been allowed to continue on with it when we finished charging him with anything, we would have got that body into no doubt about it because we could have talked to him again and said, look, uh, we don't know what Canning's told you, but uh, you've already told us about this now. What's the story, you know? Ken O'Gary did go back and see Hunt in jail, but he refused to say anything about Lucille Butterworth. O'Gary has always wondered why Canning did what he did. He puts forward the fact that Canning was an investigator on the Butterworth case in 1969-70, and like many, Canning was convinced that John Lonergan was the culprit. That was the only thing we could come up with, because he didn't want to be undermined, because he had told the department years ago that uh, Lonergan was the man. Mm. And I said to him later, because this is getting, and I'm starting to get a little bit, uh, not upset, but I'm getting a bit concerned. I thought, geez, we should have cleaned this up. We should have this bloody body and all. So anyway, I said to him once, and I said, what's going on about that? And he said, oh, don't worry about it. It's all done. He said, you've got a busy station out there. She don't need to worry anymore about that. And I said, yeah, but no, where are we with it? Where are we at with it sort of thing? We had a confession. We had an admission. And we were going to continue on with it. And then he got a bit uptight with me, you know, and uh, started to sort of not pull ranks so much, but he sort of uh, come out in no uncertain terms, you know, that uh, I, I was being a little bit uh, disobedient, a little bit uh, insubordinate, you see. That's pulling rank, I think. Pull rank on me, <laughs> see, so I had to sort of back off a bit then, yeah. It's easy to hold Canning responsible for what happened, that his insistence that Lonergan was the killer had helped Hunt escape scrutiny. But by all accounts, he was a hard-working and honest cop. 
It seems he was motivated by securing a conviction against Hunt in the Susan Knight case and not complicating it with what he thought was a false confession by Hunt over Lucille's disappearance. And if there were mistakes by Tasmania police, they occurred on multiple levels. In 2014, Plumpton and Milhouse went to see Canning, who was then suffering from advanced dementia. He still held to the view that Lonigan was the killer. And then the two weeks following, his wife rang up um, Inspector Plumpton and said, there's a few documents here that you might be interested in. And so Plumpton went down and got them. It was all the original paperwork, statements from the Lucille Butterworth case, all Canning had in his garage. I'm here at the home of Dorothy Canning, the widow of Orb Canning, who has been portrayed as the kind of villain of this whole piece. But I just wondered whether or not they're using him as a bit of a scapegoat. He's not around. He can't argue. Fortunately, his widow, Dorothy, is, and she has a very clear memory. Once he came home, I often used to laugh because we'd go to bed, and before I had time to get into bed, he'd be in bed sawing his head off. And uh, I said, oh, I said, you said, yes, he said, because I haven't got a guilty conscience about my career. <laughs> so it must be disappointing to go through this process, particularly after Orb's gone, mm. that you see characterisations of a person that you don't really know. That's not, that's not the Orb that you knew. No, no. No, he just wouldn't do anything like that. What rankles Dorothy Canning most is the suggestion that her husband had hindered the investigation by taking parts of the Butterworth file home to gather dust in the garage. He'd have brought those home when he retired for safekeeping, just in case the case was reopened, because he just had a feeling that it would have been destroyed. And for the record, where were they? Where was the file? In a cupboard. In a cupboard, properly? In our bedroom. Right. Maybe there's something else tucked away? No. No, nothing sure? at all, I'm sure. OK, well, if you do find something else, you let me know, OK? <laughs> Orb always told his wife that John Lonigan had been the killer. She shows me pictures of Orb and other police under Lonigan's house with torches in the early 70s, looking for that elusive piece of evidence. It seems he did share Hunt's confession of 1976 with Dorothy, but he simply didn't believe it. For this woman to come forward to and uh, say, well, she was lucky to get out of the taxi and it was definitely him, and uh, they reckon, you know, Hunt drove up and offed her lips and she got in, you know, and um, said, no, she said, I don't think she'd get in with him because he thought he was a real creep and looked, I used to look over the fence at her and everything. But if a taxi came up and she was wanting to get to um, New Norfolk, I mean, she may have got in with him, but I doubt very much. Norb doubted it. Well, I think that's true because I thought the same thing, to be honest, Dorothy, that yeah. on the one hand they're saying he's a figure of ridicule and fear, he's a bit odd. Yes. It was yeah. known around New Norfolk that he'd been charged with a sexual offence. He got yeah. off it. Yeah. So, of all people, why would she get in the car with him? That's um, right. I, that troubles me as well. Yes. There is that reasonable doubt once again that we must extend to Geoffrey Hunt. But his detailed confession to O'Gary and Dillon stands in stark contrast. Why would someone confess to a murder they had not committed? O'Gary is adamant that Canning tipped the scales towards Lonigan, and that was pivotal in Hunt getting off scot-free. Dorothy Canning's a lovely woman. After the inquest, she'd probably say, oh, what a bastard O'Gary is, you know, talking about my husband like that, but I'm only speaking the truth. What else can you do? The only way to answer this question would have been to follow up the claims Hunt made that night in 1976. 
efforts to tidy up the file over the years were simply ineffectual because no one mentioned the confession. And so for nearly four decades, Lucille waited and Tasmanian police drove past the alleged site of her murder year after year without ever stopping to look for her. And the Butterworth family never learnt of what Hunt had said. That is, until 2014. They didn't tell us. Now, they didn't go searching up there. They didn't go digging up there. They didn't do bloody nothing up there. Nothing. Those who did know of the confession could console themselves with the fact that Hunt was in jail for the term of his natural life. He wouldn't be bothering other women ever again. But then in 1999, that changed. A reform to sentencing meant that Tasmanian prisoners doing life had to be given a minimum non-parole term. And Hunt went back to court and was given a 23-year sentence, which expired in June 2000. Hunt had been a model prisoner, passed all his psych examinations and was deemed unlikely to re-offend by his psychologist. One of his former jailers is not convinced. You know, Hunt is still a risk. Of that I'm convinced. Yeah. I wouldn't want him living near me. Not in a million years. Yeah. I guess he gets a fair amount of scrutiny, though. You'd hope that there's there's eyes on him. No. You think so? No. The average person has no idea who's living next to them or what they do. It's not until you work in the system and the job and you know the shortfalls that you actually realise just how many people are out there in our community. And yes, technically they've done their time. Or in Hunt's case, he hasn't done his time for what he did to Lucille. But he's done his time for another murder. How is 15 years fair or however long he did in the system? It wasn't that long. Hunt has been living quietly in the community since his release from prison. His parole expires in 2020, at which time he will no longer have to report to authorities and he'll be free to leave the state. He's done his time and he's not re-offended, but what's in his heart only Jeff Hunt can know. Tim Watson-Munro is one of Australia's leading forensic psychologists. Sexual offenders are notoriously difficult to treat um, because the drives behind the offence are so powerful and pleasurable. Um, unless there's consistent long-term treatment, which often involves anti-androgen drugs, you know, to suppress their sex drive, they're very difficult to treat and they're always potentially uh, a risk to the community, in my view. You know, the likelihood of um, him re-assimilating into a community that he was already estranged from uh, in the wake of the public disclosure of very evil, bad behaviour, I would say zero. Yet Hunt did stay out of trouble for those years. He lived in a small town on Tasmania's northwest coast, but was rarely seen by locals. And by all accounts, his only friend and companion was a dog. No one came asking him questions about Lucille Butterworth. That is, until David Plumpton. He had new evidence. Hunt's confession that should have been acted on years before. I've got two police officers now saying... This man Hunt confessed to them at the time of this murder. Hold on, we've got enough here. We've got enough to charge. Next in episode three of Understate Lucille Butterworth, the police start to build their case against Geoffrey Hunt using the confession he allegedly made in 1976. They find witnesses with crucial information about the day Lucille went missing and Hunt is called upon to explain. I cannot help you with the disappearance of Miss Butterworth. I know nothing about it. You want evidence, put it on the bloody table now. Understate is written and produced by Adam Shan. Audio editing, mixing and original score by Matt Nikolic. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Associate producer is Sarah Grinberg. 
Research by Billy Simons. Understate is a Podcast One Australia production.